0: <clears throat> the longer that we continue our path of practice, of exploration, the more it seems to me that we begin to become aware of the vastness, which Joseph spoke of this morning. Just how vast the whole journey is, how vast and mysterious the process of our mind is, almost incomprehensible. Sometimes that vastness is delightful, a real joy It opens us into freedom, into letting go. Sometimes, that's not what I'm going to talk about tonight. <laughs> talked about that last week. This week I'm going to talk about when the vastness kind of flips and we get overwhelmed by the vastness of ignorance. And how a lot of people will say, as you get... Quieter, you're really noticing, you're really more tuned in to experience. It often people will comment. I I comment on it a lot in myself. It can sometimes seem amazing and you know, discouraging how quickly ignorance arises, how suddenly the calaces come shooting in when you think you've just been so present and calm and this can it can have its discouraging moments when we're looking under that lens um, of course it's not a discouraging thing ultimately because the seeing of this subtleness of the arising of ignorance is the key of course to our freedom it's a quotation from uh, a Greek Orthodox abbot of uh, 1000 A.D. Simeon, his name was, that the more a person enters the light of understanding, the more aware she is of her own ignorance. And that's really sort of what begins to happen. We might start on our path kind of blithely thinking we'll practice for a week or three months or a couple of years and then we'll sort of be free. We'll be happy. Things will be okay. And instead, we find we're plunging into... Now, I'm definitely giving the downside. It's only one bias. Sometimes we we can feel we're plunging into this morass, you know, that we had no idea existed under the surface. But each bit of seeing... The seeming complexity of this is actually our key into freedom and understanding. Just that we lose sight of it from time to time. So the Buddha said quite often that ignorance is not some solid state that we're stuck with, but that ignorance is something that arises in the moment due to conditions. And when those conditions change, then when those conditions cease to be, then so also the ignorance ceases to be. So that's you can see that from both sides, that ignorance can arise over and over. The conditions that cause it keep arising, but also it vanishes, it dissipates over and over and over. We're not stuck with some unchanging mess you know, that there's no way out of. So tonight I want to talk about a particular discourse of the Buddha, just sort of describe what he's talking about in it. Um, He's talking about the conditions for ignorance to arise, which he just mentions sort of briefly, and then seven ways that we can work with transcending or abandoning the causes that give rise to ignorance. And none of this is going to be anything new. It's all what we've been looking at and doing already. I just like it because it shows us that there's a whole array of ways to work. It's not always... I've noticed a lot recently, a lot of people are sort of, I don't know if you're sort of recapping or trying to make sure you've got everything before the end of the retreat or something. Now, what do I do about this? And how do I do this? And what are these seven? And what are these five? And somehow trying to get everything, you know, and make sure it's the right way. And so I kind of like this Sutta because there's a whole, you know, he just like lists out seven different ways to work. And of course, there's many, many more. And there's no one right way. It changes all the time, depending on what's appropriate at a given time. So the cause that the Buddha gives for ignorance arising in a moment when he's lifting his chains of cause and effect is um, in do ignorance arises in a particular moment of experience, according to the Buddha, due to the presence or the arising in the previous moment of what he calls subtle underlying tendencies of mind. I know this gets a little subtle. I hope it's not too intellectual. Certain latent tendencies or biases of mind that when present give rise to ignorance. Um, and I'll talk about this a bit, what I mean. In other words, he's saying ignorance doesn't arise because there's a huge full-blown mind state, say, of sense-desire. That's already after ignorance. But in a moment in the mind there can be arising the subtle tendency or bias or the conditions for sense desire to arise, if the conditions are right. And he lists four particular biases, any of which is arising is the condition for ignorance to arise. And because it's so subtle, I think it's, it's hard to see until we've been on a retreat looking at our minds this amount of time. And because it's so subtle is also one of the reasons that we find ourselves so often lost in a manifestation of ignorance, a pretty mild one, and not knowing how we got there. So these underlying bias towards and the ones the Buddha lists specifically, he calls them asava. That's the Pali word. And bias is a nice translation. Some of the other translations are canker, sore. I mean, they like nasty translations. Or, uh, anyway, I'll say what they are. The bias towards sense desire, the proclivity for sense desire to come up. The second one is towards becoming, becoming anything, something. Towards wrong view, of course, are main ones. Any view that we establish of self, or a view of not-self, a view of who I am, or any underlying tendency to identify with anything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, they're broad. <laughs> you see why? They come up a lot. <laughs> it's broad and it's subtle. So, this tendency is not the full-blown state itself, not the full-blown state of craving or identification, or being totally lost, but simply the possibility for it to arise, are not noticing that, and it becomes circular. There's a proclivity, say, for sense-desire. We don't notice it. It arises. We get really into a state of desire. And again, all of this without mindfulness, it again strengthens the tendency for desire to arise again in the next moment. And so it just keeps the, the biases condition ignorance, which conditions the biases. And I have to say, when I look at this on paper, it's not a satisfying explanation to me, because it's so circular. It's descriptive. But my mind always wants to say, well, let's get back to the very beginning one. That's the start of it all, and just get rid of that. And of course, that's not how it works, because it's all conditioned. One gives rise to the next, gives rise to the next, gives rise to the next. And as the Buddha said over and over, there is no one beginning point of ignorance or anything that we can go to and look at. It's all arising due to conditions. And when they fade, it fades. And so, again, as he's so pragmatic, he's in the sort of showing us how to look at, how to notice, and how to work with abandoning these underlying tendencies. And often, actually, he... uh, describes freedom or enlightenment as the total extinction of these underlying biases of mind. That's quite, not always, he describes freedom in different ways, but that's one of the ways. A mind that has become completely free of these tendencies, in which there's no more bias for sense pleasure or conceit or sense of self to arise. We can experience that in a moment. Anyway. Again, these are subtle and quite pervasive. And I'm not trying to, I'm really not trying to be depressing. I'm just trying to... (laughs) What am I trying to do? (laughs) I guess I'm trying to bring home the sense of the subtlety, so, and also that it's not personal. So, in fact, you don't get caught in some sense of defeat or discouragement or failure why it happens. And when we see clearly some painful, unhelpful pattern of our mind, and we really see it and abandon it in that moment, why that isn't it? Why does it come back later? You know, and this is something that we can only I really saw it, and now it's back. I didn't do something right. And that's not the case. It's just that we're not appreciating the level of subtlety with which all these conditions are operating. And for me, when I begin to appreciate that level, it takes away any sense of personal blame or failure. And again, it does open up to the vastness and to the, okay... This is, is for the long haul. I might as well relax and settle in and just pay attention. In the Vasudhi Maga, the, this word asava or these underlying tendencies, it actually means either to flow in or to flow out. And so this one description, again I like it because it just gives the sense, is These these, uh, tendencies as if (coughs) exuding, coming out from the unguarded sense doors like water from cracks in a pot in the sense of constant trickling. Trickle, trickle, trickle. I mean, that's a metaphor. It's not actually like we're sitting here and things are trickling out (laughs) of our ears and our eyes. You know, don't, don't take it literally. It's a way of talking. But it really... It's not that they're inherent, these bias. They're not inherent in our experience. In other words, not there no matter what. Or otherwise, there would be no point in practice, obviously. In the clear seeing, there's the abandoning of these tendencies. But in the not seeing, the sense of constant, I don't like constant trickling, but it's trickling a lot. The sense of it and how easily these these biases of mind can give rise to thought and speech and action. Is what can be so surprising when we're on a retreat. It's a simple example that I was, because you know, I was quite aware of it at this moment. I was a few couple years ago. I was sitting um, some weeks, and I was very, uh, very kind of quiet and mindful and present. It wasn't you know, a big space out or overwhelming or emotional time. I was just being with what is, noting quite steadily. And I remember, you know, these moments are just so vivid. I was looking at a tree, it was summer, out the window of my room. And I was noting, seeing, seeing, you know. And it really, that sense of attention connecting with what's happening. This very balance. And I could just feel, it's almost as if, for some reason, I consciously let down the mindfulness, or just kind of backed off, so to speak, and quit just meeting, quit just noticing, okay, seeing, seeing, just kind of backed off. Immediately, I mean, it blew me away, actually, immediately, this sense of, oh, isn't that a pretty leaf? And desire just came up, I mean, about a leaf on a tree, for God's sake. And it just, the mind leaned towards the pleasant and desire came up and memories started and the whole story started just fueled by sense desire, like that. But wow, that's really amazing. You know, and so that was just such a clear example to me of how this tendency, if the conditions, if the conditions are there, how easy it is for this tendency to give rise to ignorance. The ignorance is what clutches at a sense of pleasure to make me happy and then just on into the whole papancha, the whole story. The bias exerts an influence it flows in. In our daily life, our normal life, this is so quick and subtle, we're mostly not going to notice on this level. But here, at times, not always, at times, we can. And again, I want to emphasize, rather than that being depressing, it's just that seeing is what's opening the door to our freedom from it. Normally, we're like so inured, we're so used to these biases that we don't even notice them. Again, we've talked a lot about that. Huh? When there's a Kalesa present in experience, like greed, it colors our perception. And so this is the same on a very subtle level. Here we begin to see that, and rather than getting distressed by the seeing, it's the door to letting go, to liberating understanding. And I know, probably half of you are sitting there going, that's all fine for her to say, but she doesn't know what my mind's like, and how identified I am, and how caught up I am, you know, and forget it. I really am getting worse, no matter what. So, you guys have no perspective, really. So, this is a little newspaper article. <laughs> no. Steve, Steve Smith is actually really laughing at me, because he says I talk about renunciation and then clip things out of the newspaper all the time. <laughs> this, is, this is someone who... <laughs> <laughs> this is a little article about unexamined ignorance. And where at least you can see the difference. I don't think anyone here fits into this category. A ninety-four year old career criminal is heading back to prison again. This time on assault and gun possession charges. Ninety four years old. He's uh, Pop, they call him Pop Honeywood, was sentenced to serve seven years at ninety four. He pleaded guilty to armed assault and possession of a firearm for pointing a gun at a man who warned him not to eat grapes growing in the man's yard. (laughs) Since 1946, Mr. Honeywood has been charged with 46 crimes and has served eight jail sentences. Under one of his uh, sentencing, sentencing options this time, Mr. Honeywood could have been sent to a nursing home, but he resisted that option, saying, if I go to jail, I may be out in a couple of years. If I go to a nursing home, I may be there the rest of my life. (laughs) That's the difference (laughs) between examining our ignorance and just living with it and not even knowing it's there. (laughs) There's three levels, this might have been mentioned before, three levels of experience, three levels of mind and from which these biases give rise to manifestation. The first is the level of speech or action. Clearly the strongest level. is really, they've come up and gotten really strong and led to speech or action. Whether we speak in anger, whether we hit somebody, you know, whether we write an angry note, I mean, I'm just talking about things here, whether we point a gun, whatever it is we do. And this level is is worked with or is purified through Sila, through purification of conduct, that we can really control speech and action through working with Sila. The second level is called, uh, the kind of in, in layers of less intense, the second slightly less intense level is the kind of the level of obsessive thought, where really, it's, it's called actually the obsessive layer. We're sort of fueled by the bias towards craving or anger or identification. We're really lost and spinning and feeding the thoughts and the story and, you know, that, that sense of really spinning in it. And each thought, each emotion sort of strengthening the potential for it to rise again in the next moment. I'm sure you all know how that goes. And that level is really purified through samadhi through mindfulness, through concentration, where we can really come out of the obsessive thinking back to the actual experience itself. Both of these two levels, both sila and samadhi, the mindfulness, the concentration, when they're functioning, are in a way not giving these uh, underlying tendencies room to expand are not giving them room to develop. And that's the third layer, this one that I'm talking about tonight. The underlying, the latent, the potential for these obsessive or stronger acting out, speaking out, defilements to arise, if the appropriate conditions are there. The example that's often given is it's like a seed In that seed, say for an oak tree, there's the latent, the underlying potential for an oak tree to grow if the conditions are right, if it's watered, if it has the proper earth, if the climate's correct. But in that actual acorn, I mean, we could tear it apart. We're not going to find a tree. The tree isn't actually there. And if it's not watered, if it's not fed, It just withers and dies. It does not grow into a tree. It's not inevitable that it grow into a tree. So that's sort of an analogy of how these underlying tendencies are are said to work. And so while the first two can be purified through sila and samadhi, the first two levels, the third level of really the tendency for these things to arise is abandoned by seeing clearly by really seeing things as they are on the level of visceral understanding and the natural letting go that happens from that. You can see why our practice of sila and of the mindfulness, the concentration, the wise effort, all the factors of enlightenment, they're so vital because in each moment that there's presence, that there's mindfulness, that we're seeing, maybe we're seeing the beginning of anger, the beginning of identification, or even further along, but we come in and we're just there with it. It's not giving it room to expand. It's setting the conditions for us not to be blinded, obsessed by these potential tendencies of mind. And when the mind is not clouded by the obsessive, nature of the defilements, when that's not coloring our experience, that gives us the potential for deep-seeing, for awakening to what is really true. And as you know, as we've said, when there's just a moment of touching that which we really are, whatever way you want to describe it, emptiness, interconnectedness, the ultimate true nature, inner completion, peace, whatever way one describes it, in that moment of actually recognizing it, for that moment, and maybe for longer, the, even the underlying tendency for these confusions to arise is eradicated. And you can see that in your own experience. Now, often people will say when they have a moment just, just knowing impermanence, not remembering knowing it, not saying, oh, yes, I know everything's impermanent, so I won't be bothered by this knee pain. But in that moment of really knowing it, automatically the grasping, wanting it to change, goes away. The grasping at sense of self goes away. There's no tendency for it even to arise in that moment. And so that's the at least momentary, and the deeper and the more we see, it becomes much more full, the way that these tendencies vanish altogether. And so you can see, it might not be what your experience is a lot of the time, but every moment that we're not confused by the obsessive quality, every moment that we're simply present with what is, is setting the conditions, that's not allowing the tendencies to arise and strengthen, and is in fact opening us up to clear seeing. So just like an example of how if the conditions are right and there's no mindfulness, the tendencies flower, and how when there's really clear seeing, they don't. So without mindfulness, without a sense of clear seeing, the tendency for grasping, the tendency for identification, just little things. You go to your walking space where you've walked every walking period since the beginning of the retreat, and someone else is there. And you know they know that you always walk there. (laughs) Anger, grasping, whatever, just shoots up, you know, just lost in it. And then another time, when there's really, there's not both mindfulness, but also there's been that clear seeing at some point just of interconnectedness, for example. you walk there, the same situation, and nothing happens. It's not like you're sitting on it and saying, I will not get aversive. It just simply doesn't come up. Or even more, metta comes up instead. And many people have mentioned this, you know, and there's this sense of, Who was that? Where'd that come from? It's not what we're used to. But again, this is an example of that underlying tendency not even being there, not giving rise. So the seven ways, seven different ways we can work that the Buddha spoke about. Ways to abandon, to transcend. They're all things that we're doing now, and they're not all that radically different. I just want to run through them a little bit. And there's no hierarchy. There's no one that's better. It's just whatever's appropriate, given your situation, both internal and external, and what's accessible, what's possible in a moment. The first one, it's obvious, is seeing wisely, wise attention, seeing clearly. And of course, ultimately, it's what I just spoke of, that clear seeing of our interconnected nature that just abandons quite spontaneously. But on a more prosaic, on a more moment-to-moment level, the Buddha speaks about wise attention. He talks about this a lot. Wise attention, and he says what, it's two components, what we pay attention to and the way in which we pay attention and again, he, he's so practical. He says for what we should pay attention to, wise attention is simply, I'm quoting him, as when we're not familiar with the Dharma or we're undisciplined in it, we don't really understand which things are fit for attention and which things are not. So we pay attention to the wrong things. I mean, it's just so, it's just so basic. And, of course, it's very obvious. The, quote, wrong things is simply, it's not a matter of blame, but it's simply those things that, as we pay attention to them, it causes states of desire, aversion, becoming in ignorance to either arise, or if they're already arisen, we pay attention to things that make those states get stronger. Those are the wrong things. I mean, it's just so obvious. It's not some moralistic good or bad. And of course, the right things is just the opposite. What we pay attention to that does not cause states of greed, aversion, becoming, identification to arise, or when those states are already present, like we're lost in anger, what we pay attention to that does not cause them to increase and causes them to fade. I mean, it's obvious, and what we've been pounding on about the whole retreat, basically paying attention to the process, to the bare experience, rather than to all the papancha and all the story about it. So just, again, a simple example. You're walking, someone walks past, they're seeing, they're walking slowly, there's the thought, they're a better yoga than I am. Or maybe there's the thought they're showing off. I know actually that they're not a better yogi than I am. Either way. And then we pay attention to the content. Are they? Aren't they? Am I? I'm being pretty uh, picky here right now. I'm being pretty aversive. I really should be paying attention to my own feet. You know, and the whole self-blame, judgment, whatever it goes into. And then we say, oh, I shouldn't be thinking these things. It's not good. And it just keeps going, paying attention to the wrong thing. It's not that those thoughts are bad, but we're paying attention to the wrong thing. We're just feeding it, and it keeps on going, sort of like inertia. You know, once it's set in motion, it just has a tendency to stay in motion. It's really hard to stop. So again, the right thing is not, okay, I won't pay attention to this. I'll pay attention to my breath. Uh Uh-uh. It is coming back and being with the experience as it is. Whether it's the feeling of anger, whether it's the sense of shame, whether it's simply the contractions of sensations in the body, but simply being with things the way they are. The bare experience, or as it's sometimes talked about, with total attention, freedom from the three times. That's how to pay attention to our experience. The three times being past, present, and future. So how to be with that sense of contraction of aversion, the sense of self-judgment, the sense of envy, whatever it is. Whether you feel it as a physical contraction, whether you feel it as a tone in the mind, whether it's observable as an image, doesn't matter. But that willingness to be with that experience in that moment with total attention. When we're with it with whole and total attention the past and the future don't come up. And if we're with total attention we're also not analyzing, interpreting, or comparing. We're simply with contraction or seeing. Whatever it happens to be, in whatever form it's taking, When it's not that total accepting attention, as Upandita says, um, it's like past and future come up. So say there's a pleasant experience. It's not the total attention to it, although it's sort of there. And then he says it's like we start remembering all our past pleasant experiences that were sort of like it. As Upandita says, we bring up past pleasures and relive them over and over like a cow chewing her cud. And then we move into the future. Potentials for the future times. I could have the same pleasant experience in the future. Or we get really into analyzing, interpreting what's happening in the present. How did it get to be like this? And what does it mean? And how can I keep it going? Total attention, And this is the other aspect of wise attention, is just simply there. Free of the three times. Not bringing in the past and present not analyzing past and future, not analyzing the present. Just what it is. So that, this first of the seven ways, wisely seen, wise attention. Again, it's this quality of wise, total attention that is going to open up the door to liberating insight, that keeps us from being sidetracked by our interpretations and our biases. Without it, with unwise attention, we fall into, it it leads to what uh, the Buddha called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views. Just all the views of I am this, I am that. I am a self, I am a not-self. I've been in the past, I've been this. In the future, what will I be? He lists all these views, and I think Steve Smith is going to talk about views uh, later this week, so I'm not going to go into it. But you can really see how unwise attention, even if it's as simple as remembering all our past pleasant experiences and imagining the future ones and analyzing the present, it leads us into all kinds of opinions and views about who we are and who we're going to be and who we were in the past and what's really going on. And by and large, they're a waste of time definitely aren't helping us to see clearly. So that's wise attention. Another attitude, and a lot of these are attitudes, not necessarily techniques, to work with uh, regarding understanding and abandoning some of these biases in the mind, is restraint at the sense doors, guarding the sense doors. And in first reading the sutta, it could be easy to think it just means, you know, that real restraint of not looking around, not reaching out to sound, which can definitely be helpful. A lot of us have talked about how much the desire to look around leads to so much actually suffering So much wanting, so much comparing, so much negativity, inner and outer, and how just the simple act of restraint of the eyes doesn't give these tendencies room to expand. But it could be easy to take that a little far. It's actually a friend of mine did once where he went around the retreat blindfolded for several days. (laughs) (laughs) That's not exactly the point, you know, to try and go around blind and deaf and not feel anything. It's not to, you know, engender a loathing or a fear of sense experience. But more again, that keeping the restraint at the sense door is really what we've talked about when we talk about Papancha, the proliferation of mind of being able to notice what's happening at the sense door. If someone walks by where we're seeing, there might be perception of who it is. And we just keep it there. We keep the attention there. We don't have to expand it into that whole story of judgment and comparing and craving and envy. I mean, of course, sometimes we can't do this. Again, this is just one of many ways to work. Sometimes, though, we can really work at restraining the proliferation at the sense door. Being just as that sutta of the Buddha I I quoted earlier of, in the seen there is just what is seen. In the heard there is just what is heard. In the sensed, just what is sensed. In the cognized, simply what is cognized. That's all. It's not like some aversive holding back. But more relaxed settling back and just this simply seeing hearing, sensing, thinking, inner seeing emotions just what is without any problem this is really restraint at the sense doors and when there's that simply being with what is, the tendencies for sense desire identification whatever simply do not flower they do not sprout. Without that, as we all know very well, it leads into fields, fields of proliferation and story. And as I said before, each moment of really getting into who I am and what can I do to make myself better, to be a good yogi, to have a better sitting, whatever, each moment of that thats not that we're not aware of, that isn't met with mindfulness, is actually strengthening that bias or the tendency of the mind to move into craving in the next moment, to move into judging in the next moment. It's just how it works. So Ajahn Chah said, when the nose smells an odor, let it go. Just leave it at the nose. So that's what we do. Just leave it at the eyes. Leave it at the ear. Leave it at the nose. There's nowhere to go with it. It's just empty anyway. The third is, and this one I think is interesting, I wouldn't have thought of it myself. <laughs> luckily we have the Buddha, we don't have to think of these things, it would be a mess. <laughs> Stephen Armstrong and I were just talking about, you know, if, you had, if we had to, all of us, I mean, had to not only pay attention to our experience, but really sort of see the field of meaning out of which it comes, you know, impossible. Impossible. Amazing. It's amazing the way the Buddha put all this stuff together. You know, how many of us could sit here and come up with a theory of that there's these underlying biases of mind that give rise to ignorance in a moment? I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. But anyway, and we're saying it, I'm saying this not to indoctrinate or something, this is how it is, but simply as a way to turn each of you, each of us, back to our own experience. Simply look at your own experience and see what is so. See what holds up. See what's true in your experience. What leads to more suffering? What leads to less suffering? And that's what you believe. But anyway, I'm so appreciative that the Buddha laid out so many maps and ways to at least begin to move into understanding our experience. This is a a way to start. So this third way of abandoning bias for greed, bias for identification, for becoming, for wrong views, is to careful attention to the attitude with which we use things. The attitude with which we use those things which are necessary for our existence. So the monks, he's talking about the attitude with which they use food and clothing and shelter. And I think it's really interesting we can certainly see the outer effects in the world of so many centuries of using all our resources with absolutely no care whatsoever to the attitude with which we're using them. And that's the outer effect. Here we can sort of begin to pay attention to the inner effect. Do we use things out of an attitude of care and using just what we need to take care of ourselves? For example, however many blankets you need to keep warm. The amount of food that we need to be healthy, to be wakeful, to be strong. Where does it tip over when we're using it out of care and respect for ourselves and others into fear, you know, that we won't have enough. Or greed, in case I won't be happy. When do we go and run around and save a few extra blankets that we don't actually ever use, just in case, even though someone else might need them. But even leave aside that someone else might need them, just in the way that it strengthens the bias for fear to arise. If we're using, say, more blankets than we need out of fear, holding on to it, a moment of using in that way is strengthening the tendency for fear to come up again. So we're really... Uh, bringing on the potential for more suffering in ourselves. Or when we take, you know, three extra rice cakes of tea after we've finished. What's the attitude? It might really be that you know your energy drops at nine o'clock, you really need, or when you get up in the morning, you eat it out of real care and appreciation and fine. Or is it that lurch of fear and they're piling up on the back shelves there in the small dining room. And there's ten rice cakes from the last week and a few old moldy bananas. What's the, uh, never mind the outer effects, okay, you're feeding the cockroaches and they're very appreciative, but what's the effect on our inner nature? And this is when it's really important to see that what's happening in that moment of using resources. Out of an attitude of fear is we're bringing on ourselves more suffering. And again, this isn't about looking from the outside and saying what's bad or good, or out of some kind of austere asceticism. That can be done out of hatred for oneself, which is also not helpful, you know, because then that's just propagating the tendency for hatred to come up. But really looking at how we relate to the things that we use. And when we can just use what's needed with this sense of trust, not worrying or fearful about tomorrow, probably no one here is going to starve tomorrow. Probably there'll be breakfast. Probably there'll be lunch. Probably there'll be rice cakes and peanut butter for tea. (laughs) You can probably count on that. And if not, that's something else. And you know how it just feels so free when we can let go of that fear, Or that greed, just in a moment, and appreciate what's here. Without that scarcity model in which everyone else becomes a rival for a limited number, a limited amount of resources, instead of a sense of just taking what we need and flowing, which is really such a lovely way to live. Or just that difference between when you're appreciating the lunch, just eating, appreciating, no problem, open, spacious, and then you hear that kind of scraping of the spoon on the table. You think, "Uh uh-oh, there's not much left. I wonder if I should get up now and get seconds before it's gone. And that thought, unnoticed, expands, gets going, and where's the appreciation? Your plate's still half full. But where's the appreciation of the rest of the meal? gone. You know, it's just a struggle. Do I jump up now or do I wait? No, I'll wait. I'll just be open. I won't be craving. But, you know, we're just tight. And the difference between just that appreciation and letting, letting it go, we don't need to act out of fear. Well, sometimes we do need to act out of fear. We don't have a choice. But when we have a choice, we don't need to. And to just expand into that way of relating to resources it's quite lovely. So that's three. The fourth way, and this one, often people don't believe us when we try and talk them into it in interviews. The Buddha said, yes, one way of working with difficult experiences is to avoid them. Of course, he didn't say, avoid doesn't mean I don't like this, so I think I'll leave the retreat. Not exactly that level of avoidance. The examples he gave of, you know, you avoid a savage elephant, or you avoid a poisonous snake, or you avoid unwholesome company. But it's really, I think, looking with discernment and realizing that we can't handle every experience. Sometimes the savage elephant or the poisonous snake is a so-called internal experience in ourselves. Something's just coming up so strong and overwhelming that it's just as if we were run over by a wild elephant. And so easily, uh, people seem to get the idea, true mindfulness means I can be with anything every moment, and if I back off, I'm wimping out, you know. So I think it's really, the Buddha said, yes, this is one of the things to do. You avoid what is unwholesome, what is difficult, what is, one is unable to meet with any kind of balance at a particular time. And obviously, This is going to vary in your own experience widely from time to time. What you might need to avoid at one time you might be quite able to be with at another time. So there's no cut and dried experience here. But you can see just in the way the retreat is set up. There's a lot of experiences that we've set it up for you to avoid. You know, we ask you not to get your mail, Talking to each other, not reading Newsweek every week. We don't have TVs, you know, in the back dining room. I mean, there's a reason for that. We set it up so that you avoid situations. We're not saying communication is a bad thing, you know, it's, it's, it's really unskillful to communicate with your family, you know, or that hearing the news is wrong. Well, nothing like that. But to be inundated, to, to have so much contact, so much input, so much communication just makes it so much easier in a situation like this for the tendencies to come up, for sense desire to come up. I mean, all you need to do is see one commercial for something on TV you go, oh, yeah, Jamaica, you know, you just see a commercial of Jamaica, and that's it for the next two hours. Or just... And the people who've gotten the letter suddenly in the middle of retreat know it just can send the mind flying with either fear or wanting or self-identification, whatever. So it's a wise avoidance in order to set the conditions where these tendencies don't arise so that we can then see what is so, set the conditions for knowing truth, for knowing things as they are is uh, avoidance of discernment, not of aversion. So if you find you're working with avoidance and you find that the uh, motivation doesn't seem to be a balanced one of seeing, I can't handle this, but one of total aversion to what is happening, avoidance might not be the right attitude. And it probably won't work anyway. When we're doing it from that point, it usually doesn't work. So aside from avoidance, the next one that the Buddhist spoke about is patience. In other words, the things that we cannot avoid, the difficult experiences that we cannot change to meet with patience, which we've spoken about quite a lot. That quality of total acceptance of things just as they are with a real equanimity that isn't flustered by whatever's happening. You know the phrase, develop a mind that is like the earth. That whatever we throw on the earth, whatever we do to it, however ravaged it might be, it accepts all things equally. And at some point, <coughs> begins again to nurture all people equally. It doesn't say, you know, I like you, I don't like you. You can drink the water, you can't breathe the air. It's just this sense of spacious acceptance of whatever might come. And I I really love to see how if there's just a little crack in the pavement, how a flower or grass will start to grow up. However much we try to pave over the earth or whatever we kind of do to it, somehow the, the life, the nurturing aspect of, of the planet begins to come through, no matter how hard. And it kind of... I think of that image when I try to call up in myself the attitude of patience, this open acceptance. I talked about last week this radical acceptance of the things we can't change, external or internal. Again, it's quite a discerning thing to tell when to use acceptance and when avoidance. And it's going to be changing a lot, back and forth. When I was in Thailand for the year or so, during that time as a nun, I actually, I learned actually quite a lot about patience, but also of avoidance and when to use each and when I would try to avoid what was unavoidable, how much suffering comes from that. So I went actually uh, after, for at least a year I was planning to be there, a couple of years, having sat mostly here and in England, and with, you know, highfalutin ideas of going off into the forest and living this life of solitude and peace and bliss and really getting deep in my practice and all these expectations and kind of self-conceited ideas about what it would be like, which of course, forget it. So I thought I would spend months alone in the beautiful forest and instead I spent probably the first four months I was there in a temple in Bangkok very noisy, extremely noisy, not quiet, very hot, extremely hot, it was the hot season. So I didn't have much, I didn't kind of grow into the hot season. I arrived pretty close to the hot season. And so in Bangkok, outside of the walls of the monastery, there's all kinds of loudspeakers blaring rock music, Western rock music, Thai rock music. Inside there's a plethora of animals, and what I remember particularly are the roosters, because there must have been hundreds of roosters, and they would start, maybe 3 a.m., they would start, and one by one, they would all crow over and over and over. And I said, please, please stop. I'm not ready to get up yet, you know. But forget it. You have to get up, and the dogs and the cats, and they screech and they howl, and I mean, it's just wild. And the heat was quite for me, unbearable, very humid. I'm probably 120, plus my little hut had a tin roof. So it was just like, just bake, bake in there. And except for being inside, I was in a temple where uh, the abbot was wonderful to me. And I didn't know how um, really radical he was being because he ordained me as a nun and there were no other nuns in this temple. And he ordained me, and then he let me stay in a kuti, and they had little kutis with grass, and it was very nice for Bangkok, which I didn't realize how nice it was. I just got into aversive mode. I was in a little kuti surrounded by kutis filled with monks. I mean, which is almost unheard of, but it basically meant I could never step outside without being completely covered. And you have these long sleeve, long sleeve shirts, always polyester, with a polyester undershirt. I tried to get cotton. It was really, really hard. And then you have to put this robe over. Again, polyester. So I would just kind of walk out and drip. And <laughs> go back inside and, you know, wash and curse a little bit. And say, oh, that's wrong speech. And I could go on and on. But it just, it was not engendering light, blissful mind states. <laughs> and I was there for probably three months, I would say. And, um, Finally, I went to the forest. I did have a nice kuti in the forest. Actually, I was treated wonderfully everywhere I went. And it wasn't until months later that I could appreciate it. The forest, I want to tell you, it is not quiet. I thought the forest would be quiet. It is so noisy. <laughs> it's incredible that just the insects and the, the Tuke lizards that just go off all night in your kuti, out of your kuti, really very loud, I was under a wild mango tree, again with a tin roof. So I'd be sitting in in the middle of meditation, these mangoes would drop on the roof like an explosion. (laughs) Really, I'd jump about two,
1: (laughs) settle down again.
0: (laughs) And then, of course, the, the watts in the country are beautiful. So they're like parks. So that means on weekends, tour buses, of people from surrounding areas come and they all kind of troop through in front of the kutis because the women's kutis, of course, were on the side where all the people are so it'll be safe. The men are across the river and nice and quiet, that's how it always is. So they troop by, you know, two tour buses of people go off into the woods, have their picnic, troop back out. You know, it's nice they could come and enjoy and support the temple and everything. It's really part of the symbiotic relationship, it's lovely. I wasn't in that mind state at the time, because people would come up and look in my door, oh, look at the Farang Chi, you know, and they'd just stand there and stare at me while I was sitting, or I'd be walking and they'd come up, I'd turn around, and they'd be right there with a the camera, you know, to take my picture when I'd turn around, and it was a trip. So, working between patience and avoidance. I thought, okay, I can put, like, a, a sheet up over my screen so people can't look in, and that would really help me avoid engendering a lot of unpleasant mind states. But there was a lot I couldn't avoid. And it was, it was at least a couple of months before, before I saw clearly that I was so much feeding the tendency for aversion to arise that it actually got to the point that almost anything that came into my experience, aversion would arise. It didn't even have to be particularly aversive. And I got it. Oh, I'm conditioning aversion here. I'm practicing aversion. This is not helpful. (laughs) The seeing of that really did help. I mean, that really, just the seeing was like kind of a releasing, a letting go, and opening up, and that's the opening into patience. And wait a minute. This is how it is here. I can leave or I can stay. And if I stay, this is how it is. And that patience really broadens the experience. And that's when I could really start to appreciate, actually, how wonderfully I was being treated. And, of course, the many positive aspects that I talked about another time. Um, It's really quite interesting. Patience is a wonderful tool. It's not just a way to get through something we don't like. But, again, it's this (laughs) In a moment, just in a moment of being with what is. You know, all the times when you're, you're sort of present, but you're not really concentrated. You don't really like what's happening. You can't say, I'm having good practice. But there's patience. There's that acceptance. In that moment, through the patience, the underlying tendencies are not being given room to flower. And that's a lot. Because each moment that these tendencies aren't flowering is a moment that's both conditioning, again, patience, metta, and clear seeing. And that's letting clear seeing be possible. So really, when we get to these subtle levels, don't undervalue patience. It's, it's actually an amazing tool. It's not flashy, but it's really a, a huge aspect of allowing us to open to truth. Now, of course, I have one minute to talk about the other two. The other two, the sixth one, the sixth method for abandoning the habits of mind is the translation I read called it removing. What I would call it is what Joseph calls the sword of wisdom. The times that we're not meeting experience right at that door of perception, where we can't just guard the sense doors, but we land in the middle of an already arisen state, whatever it is, wanting, fear, greed, identification. But there's that moment of recognition when we can just bring in that kind of clear, okay, that's it, enough now. Don't let it expand any further. Now, this gentle sort of wisdom, I'm not talking about a hammer. You know, that's enough. Get away. That's just more aversion. But that place where we can see, I'm really, like when I saw, I was really getting into aversion. Okay, so it took two months. And sometime I saw it, that's enough. There's no need for this to expand anymore. And of course we can't always do that. But there's many times that we can do that. But I think we don't do it nearly as often as we could. You know, sometimes we get seduced by thinking we're being mindful, but actually we're getting sucked in. And so there's this, just, okay, okay, you think you're no good because that person walks slower, that's enough. Just come back to the experience. That's enough. Removing, not giving them a chance to expand. And the last, and this is happening quite spontaneously, simply by virtue of your mindfulness practice. And this is the development, the strengthening and balancing of the seven factors of enlightenment. I don't know if anyone's, has anyone given a talk about all the seven factors? No one has. We've talked about each one of them separately. But one of the ways, I guess conceptual, but one of the ways of looking at we're kind of holding a sense of what's going on in meditation practice is that each of these seven factors is being strengthened and balanced. I'll just say what they are. There's three tranquilizing factors, calming factors. One is calm, tranquility. One is equanimity, that real non-reactive space of mind. And the third calming one is concentration focus steadiness of mind that just stays with what is doesn't move around there's three energizing factors energy obviously effort or energy second one is rapture pt which it sometimes manifests as this real vivid interest in what's going on and the third energizing factor is investigation which I know Michelle gave a whole talk on, investigation, not thinking about, but the investigation of being with what's happening, seeing what happens to it, without interpretation. So three energizing, three calming. And the seventh is mindfulness, what else, that balances all of them. Mindfulness can't be too out of balance. I so say you can't have too much mindfulness. And so a lot of what it's one of the ways we kind of look when we're talking to people in interviews is kind of seeing which factors are, are stronger, which factors could be boosted a little bit. Sometimes they all seem really That's what I get. <laughs> I'm breaking my promise. So, uh, these seven factors are all quite naturally being developed through the practice. It happens by itself. But you can see sometimes people tend to get, we get talk a lot about mindfulness, a lot about concentration. We mention all the others, but often, um, you know, people just tend to talk about or kind of get fixated, maybe on concentration, maybe on mindfulness, maybe on effort. But we forget it's a whole range of all seven. And what happens naturally, and as you become more familiar with the energy of each, you can kind of tune in, and I'll do that sometimes when I'm sitting, and things are just feeling, not that I don't like what's happening, but it just feels off. And I'll kind of tune in and see, well, is one of these not quite happening? You know, sometimes there's maybe no investigation. I'm trying to be mindful, but there's this underlying feeling of, I don't really care what's going on. Oh, okay. Let me see if I can get a little interested here. You know, sometimes there's not much energy, that's obvious. Sometimes we're really with it, but there's no calm, for example. So a lot of focus on in interviews is just sort of steering toward what everyone seems to be a little out of balance. And it's constantly evolving and shifting process and don't get all hung up on it because it's happening by itself. So again, that's the seventh way that he speaks of, is the developing and strengthening of the seven factors of enlightenment. I don't know if you remember, earlier on I read a quotation from the Buddha where he said that mindfulness of breathing developed and practiced perfects the four foundations of mindfulness, which developed and practiced, perfects the seven factors of enlightenment, which developed in practice perfect clear vision and deliverance. So see, it's a natural progression. You know, talk all night and then say it's actually happening by itself. Sometimes the noticing can be really helpful to see where we're stuck. Sometimes it can get too intellectual and you're thinking about it. In that case, forget it, because it's all happening by itself. And again, as subtle and pervasive as the tendencies might be for confusion to arise, for wanting to arise, for identification to arise, the seeing of it, don't let that be discouraging, because the seeing of it is the opening to freedom from it. This is actually a quotation from Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. Recognize what is in your sight and what is hidden will become clear to you. That's what we're really doing here. Recognizing what is in our sight. By itself, what is hidden will become clear. So let's sit for a minute.